In the name of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Nine years ago this time, I was living in Texas. And my sister Jill was living in Covington, uh, where she lived with her husband and her 17-year-old son. I received a call on a Tuesday night from my brother informing me that she had been taken to the emergency room and was quickly admitted to the intensive care unit because several of her organs were failing. She was barely alert the next day, able to mumble only a few words. But the following day, Thursday, Jill showed signs of improvement, eating a little, recognizing visitors, and so there was a feeling of hope that she was on her way to recovery. Then on Friday morning, my sister's condition changed radically. And she was told that if she were not placed on a ventilator to help her expel toxic gases, she would die. Well, Jill consented to the ventilator, and that was the last time that she was ever responsive. And, and many of you have surely experienced what came next. Phone calls from family members, quickly packing a bag to catch a flight or to make a drive, hoping to arrive before your loved one died, and then to arrive at the hospital only to wait and to pray and to hope and to be with others who are all doing the same thing. Jill was always proud that her brother chose a life of ordained ministry, and so her husband asked me if I would officiate at Jill's funeral if she did not recover. Now, I would counsel any clergy person not to do a funeral for a family member. But somehow this seemed natural to me, and, and, and I thought that in this particular case it might well be beneficial to the grieving process for myself, and, and so I consented. After eight days in the ICU, the doctor ordered sedatives to be discontinued to see what level of alertness Jill might achieve, and she didn't wake up. Later in the day, it was decided that all treatment would be discontinued the next day. Perhaps Jill could breathe on her own. Perhaps Jill could maintain an appropriate blood pressure without the assistance of medication. And perhaps her little four-foot-nine body could do neither one of those things. Accompanied by her husband, her son, my two daughters, and a few family members, I was at Jill's bedside for that 30 minutes as she slipped away. And the rest of the family was all downstairs in the chapel praying. For eight days, I experienced the physical and emotional exhaustion that anyone in that situation would expect. As a middle child, as a hospice chaplain, and as a priest, I spent a lot of time that week in a pastoral role, doing my best to quell the anxiety of others and offering whatever comfort I could to a family who waited and watched, preparing themselves for the very worst as they hoped for the best. The day before Jill died, it was announced that I would officiate at the funeral. Well, that caused great distress among some of my family members, and, and I was stuck in the middle. 
I knew that it would have meant a lot to my sister for me to conduct her funeral, but at the same time, I saw what grief it would cause some members of my family if a Roman Catholic priest did not officiate. And so, of course, that, that phrase from today's gospel we just heard, that a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his own kin, went through my mind over and over and over again. After a difficult night of prayer and reflection, I decided that the best thing for this family, for, for my family, was to have a Catholic priest do my sister's funeral. And honestly, there was great relief in that decision because I knew that that was the appropriate response. So I visited with this priest just before the funeral and asked if it would be all right for my immediate family and me to receive communion. And he said, only if they're Catholic. Now, I've never faulted the Roman church for their practice regarding who may or may not receive communion. I mean, after all, that's their prerogative. But it caused me great sadness to know that I could not receive the Holy Sacrament at my own sister's funeral. And being a white male in America, I've not often experienced what it feels like to be excluded. And to me, this was exclusion of the highest order. And again, I don't fault the Catholic Church. But this situation just added yet another dimension to my grief. So why am I telling you all all of this stuff? So today's gospel, Jesus is being rejected in his own hometown. Remember in last week's gospel, Jesus healed a demoniac. He cured a woman of hemorrhaging. And he restored life to a little girl. The crowds were crazy about Jesus. But then he goes back to Nazareth, where he grew up. And the people there give him no legitimacy. In fact, they took offense at Jesus. Rejected by demons, rejected by the Gentiles and the religious authorities, Jesus is now rejected by his own people. But none of that, none of that stops the work of God. Surely and patiently, God continues to work through Jesus as Jesus then sends out two by two his disciples to continue his work. God continues to work through those very disciples as they use the authority that Jesus gave them over unclean spirits and as they go about sharing with others the hope that God has given to the world, God continues then to work through Jesus as Jesus' journey on earth leads him to the ultimate rejection, to be tortured and crucified in order that the truest victory of all might be won. Whether we see it or not, God is at work all around us in our joy, in our challenges, in our rejections by others. God is even at work in our deepest grief. God was certainly at work among my family as we kept that eight-day vigil in a hospital. In that time, 
my brothers and I were reunited in a deeper sense of bond, and we formed closer relationships with our stepsisters. My aunt and cousins, whom I had not seen in years, came together as we shared laughter and tears and prayers. God was at work as I got to know my nieces and nephews as adults and learn about what's going on in their lives. And God was surely at work when we all united in offering comfort to my dad simply by our presence at times and at other times holding him, embracing him as we grieved together, sharing heartfelt words of love that often go unsaid. You see, one of my sister's greatest desires was to bring the family together. Over the previous 25 years or so, she planned and executed parties and get-togethers that we all enjoyed so much. Well, Jill certainly brought us together this time. And I believe in those 30 minutes as she was slipping away that she felt peace in knowing that so many had come together in love for her and in love for one another as she passed on to life eternal. While it may be difficult to see God's work when a loved one is critically ill or hurt or when a loved one dies, be assured that God is indeed at work just as God was at work on that murderous hill where his own son's life was so brutally taken away. With so many negative things taking place in this world we live in, we often have to look very hard to see God at work. And so maybe that's what we ought to be doing every day, you know, keeping alert each and every day so we might see the wonderment of God in our midst in times of sheer happiness as well as in times of bitter grief and sadness. No matter what we're presented with in life, all of creation continues on a journey, a journey that leads to the fulfillment of God's kingdom. And you and I have front row seats to the miracles of God's mercy and love that are taking place each and every day around us, even if sometimes we have to look really, really hard. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.